couple good songs deep in theology. I hope you realize. Um, yes, the kids are dismissed. Sorry. That's my job now, to dismiss the older children. We're keeping them in worship, if you haven't noticed. Give the parents an opportunity to teach them, beat them, whatever you need to do. I got beat when I was a kid. I don't know about y'all. If I didn't go to sleep, if I wasn't coloring, uh, my brother on the other side would elbow me. We'd just fight back and forth, but it was good. We, uh, over time, learned how to act, and we learned uh, why we were in the room, why we sang the songs we did, and why some funny-looking dude got up front and read from a big black book. Amen? Um, I was talking about the music. Uh, what I was saying was, uh, well, Preston, that is, if you haven't noticed, doesn't just choose songs at random. doesn't choose songs that uh, necessarily he likes. doesn't choose songs necessarily because he knows you're going to like them. He chooses songs because they're rich in theology, and uh, he trusts that the Lord will be pleased when we, when we sing them with a pure heart. Um, I was... Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14, so you can go ahead and turn uh, while I'm running on here at the beginning. And I was thinking about the last two songs we sang, you know, uh, from the inside out, asking God to begin to change us, that our deepest desire is to be changed. Uh, sometimes I'll get up here and before we, before we get into the text, I'll God to hold us to a commitment. That our commitment will be as we gather together and as we open this book, that our commitment would be collectively and as individuals to be changed. And uh, true change comes, as you know, from the inside when it comes to spiritual things. And uh, then we sang, Rock of My Salvation. And I thought, you know, if that's true, if we sing that hearts and we don't just sing it with our lips, if we believe what we're singing, then it will cause us to have a desire to want to be changed from the inside out. Now, this passage this morning is one of those change passages, okay? Uh, let me just warn you, it is one of those passages that uh, speaks directly to our actions and says, hey, if this is going on, it's nice. So that's where we're going this morning. Uh, every now and then, uh, I get this desire, and I haven't done it yet, but uh, maybe coming up here soon, I'm going to do it. I get a desire just to preach a straight out, changing our activity message. You know what I mean by that? I mean, uh, we spend a good amount of time dealing with theology and dealing with purpose and dealing with priorities in Scripture, dealing with, with... And every now and then I just have this desire to go to Proverbs and just make my way through some key Proverbs on how we ought to act. Amen? I mean, it's one thing to say we've got this theology and this doctrine inside of us, but if it doesn't flesh itself out from the inside, then the theology and the doctrine is just dead. That's the danger of churches, by the way, who teach... The Bible and are strong in teaching is that we get a bunch of uh, we get a bunch of well Bible eggheads who begin to attend and we don't see people doing any of it. That's the danger, okay? And so we are, by the way, majoring on the Bible and Scripture and teaching theology and doctrine. But every now and then, I just want to say, hey, listen, is this stuff getting out? Is it getting into your life? Is the rubber hitting the road? Are we are we doing it? Are we decent people out there? Are we moral? Are we kind? Are we generous? Are we servants? Are we the type of men and women that we want our children to marry? You know, I've realized that that's probably the best and most pure picture 
of the type of people that we all know we want to be, the children we love, and we were to paint a picture of the man or the woman that we want them to marry, that is the ideal person in our mind, in our limited sinful mind. That is the best person we can come up with. Amen? And we want that person to be kind. We want them to be generous. We want the theology, the Christianity, not just to be on the inside. We want it to flesh itself out. Okay? We're in Luke. And this is one of those passages where Jesus finds himself uh, in the midst of some people, in the midst of Pharisees and Sadducees, and he's going to be challenged. And uh, Jesus doesn't go into this planning to teach. He goes into this to eat lunch. But in the end, he's going to teach some pretty basic, but straightforward and needed information. Pray, and then we're going to look at Luke chapter 14. Father... We do love you, and uh, the desire of our sinful hearts is that it makes its way from the inside out. The truth is, Father, if it doesn't get out, then um, then we're doing you a disservice, and we're doing your we're doing this world a disservice, and we're doing our fellow believers a disservice because we're not of the character. We're not of the character of our God. So, Lord, would you teach us this morning? And as always, we commit, and wherever your word says something that differs from our lives, Lord, this morning we commit to change. With your help and the help of the Holy Spirit, we ask this. Amen. Luke chapter 14. We're going to go uh, all the way through verse 24. Uh, I've told you before about the Luke and parables. That they're really, well, when you read through the Luke and parables, one the, uh, theologian said, uh, you need to look at the Luke and parables like a good lollipop. You just need to enjoy it. Okay? The Luke and parables are parables that you tell to your kids. They're good moral parables. The liberals, incidentally, love the parables. They love Luke and parables. Can you guess why? Because they deal with moral, social issues. And the liberals tend to say that the gospel, to a, uh, to a fault degree, the liberals will say that the gospel really just boils down to good moral teachings and developing good moral people. Now, it has to do a lot more than that. We've got to deal with sin and judgment and all that, right? But we love to talk about the social gospel on the liberal side because it, it just deals with the heart of the issue. And Jesus just wants us to be better people and he wants us to all get along, etc. Well, they love the parables because the parables tend to speak to those... And this morning, I'm not going to go so deep that you miss that, okay? Sometimes we go so deep into the parables that we miss what's on the face. And I want you to see what happens to Jesus over lunch on the Sabbath. Verse 1, chapter 14. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. That's the setup. It was customary for lunch after temple. Their Sabbath, Saturday, our Sunday. Now, it would be like us going to lunch and saying, hey, why don't you come on over to our house? We're going to fix lunch. We're going to have some people over. Except that in this culture, it was, uh, it, was a, it was a mark of your status to be invited to certain people's homes. And so to get invited to the home of a Pharisee or a Sadducee, a religious figure, a leader in the Jewish cult, a thing of importance. I mean, you were deemed then important just by association, just by going to lunch at this person's house. And so Jesus apparently is invited by one of these leaders to the house. But we get an interesting note from the author here. Did you see the last uh, phrase in that verse? It says, and they were watching him closely. 
Most commentators believe that this is another one of those situations where they're going to either pose questions to him or put him in a situation where he has to act one way or another. And either way, they feel like they've got Jesus in this mousetrap and he's going to get caught. And they're going to either be able to condemn him from a Jewish standpoint, they're going to be able to condemn him in front of Rome. And so we're in one of those passages here. They've got their eyes on Jesus. But Jesus goes, right? Look at verse 2. And there in front of him, now here's the setup. And there in front of him was a man suffering from, my translation says dropsy. It's really a, a form of edemia. It's, uh, uh, from what I've read, it's a, it's a storage. It's the uh, overwhelming storage of fluids in your body, okay? So you've got this guy uh, suffering from edemia, this fluid storage disease. Now I want you to understand how odd this is. This guy doesn't get invited to these types of meals. And so back to the setup situation. You're going to see why this guy's here. And there in front of him, that's Jesus, was a man suffering from dropsy. I'm sure that they didn't place him in front of Jesus on accident. Verse 3, And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying... The passage never says that they posed a question to Jesus. It's just like they marched this guy in front of him, sat him down at Jesus' table, and they're just watching him to see, all right, what do you think about, what do you think about this, Jesus? And you're thinking, well, what's the issue? He tells us the issue. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Being the question that they want him to answer. He says, What do you guys think? I mean, am I going to get in trouble here in this house if I heal this guy who obviously needs healing just because it's the Sabbath? And you remember, the Jews, Pharisees, and Sadducees, they created this litany of rules based on the foundational laws that God gave. They created this narrowly long list of side rules about what you could do, what you couldn't do. You couldn't carry wood on the Sabbath because it would be declared work and you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And so they had all these ridiculous rules that dismissed the purpose of the law and they began to be legalism. You see? And so Jesus now, he understands what's going on. You bring this guy in front of me who's obviously in need of and you want me to either heal him or ignore him? And so Jesus poses the question back to them. Puts them on the spot. Look at what the reaction is. Verse 4, But they kept silent. And he took hold of him, that's the guy who's ill, and healed him and sent him away. Beautiful passage. Character of our Savior, the character of our God, the compassion of our God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that Jesus knows the setup, but he takes hold of the one who needs a touch. Okay, don't miss that. So Jesus makes a decision and he heals the guy. Verse 5, and he said to them, which one of you will have, or an ox, fall into a well? Incidentally, he uses the same theme of water here. That guy has a problem, a disease that is an issue of water. He says, which one of you would have an ox or a son and let it fall into a well and decide that just because it's the Sabbath, you can't go in after them? Would any one of you do something ridiculous like that? As if to say, can you, can you imagine that me... the Looking at one of my sons, one of my created ones, could see him in this spot, could see him in this situation and not have compassion upon him and not touch him just because it is the Sabbath. Verse 6. And they could not reply to this. 
talking here? Now that's the setup. 7 through 11 is the Lucan parable. That's the situation of the next parable on our list, okay? Let me read it to you. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Here's what happens. They brought Jesus in. They could watch him. By the time we get to verse 7, Jesus is watching them. He tells them a parable because he has noticed some things while he is sitting at this lunch. You see how the table has turned here? They're watching Jesus. Jesus says, I see some things in you that I'm used about. Now again, I told you earlier that these lunches, these invitations were, were a status deal. To get invited to so-and-so's house was a status thing. And so you went to those things uh, as part of your way of climbing the social rungs on a ladder in that culture. And so many of these guys were there because they felt like if they were there, they got some level of credit. They got some status. They got some recognition. Well, Jesus sees this going on. Now, don't forget the context. He sees this jockeying for position going on while there's this man suffering in their midst. Don't lose that. They brought this guy in. They set him before Jesus. And instead of being worried about their fellow man, their own social status. And that's indicated by the fact that he sees them fighting over seats. In this culture, uh, not too far off from ours, it's like uh, going to a wedding. Those who sit at the head table get more honor because they're closer to the bride and the groom. Meal in the Jewish culture, those who sat closest to the host were the highest of honor. Because, in essence, you were closer to the man who's running the show. So that's the picture. And these guys come in and they're fighting over the seat at the right hand of the host. So that they can be declared the highest. Now you remember passages back when Jesus talks to his disciples. wants to be first, needs to become last. And so those kind of passages should be ringing in our head right now. And Jesus is sitting at this meal... And these guys are fighting over seats so that they can receive some honor and some fame and some glory. And there's one in the midst and he's healing. And Jesus says, I don't like it. Now look at the parable. When you have a feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace... You proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, do this instead. Go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, friend, move up higher. Do you notice what the address was to the last guy who sat in the highest seat? He just told him to move. Didn't call him anything. Didn't address him in any way. Just said, hey, this isn't your seat. Sent him down the road. But to this man who's taken the last seat, who deserves greater honor... His humbleness is recognized. And the host says what? Friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 11 is the principle. It's a principle that's not... Uh, well, it's not 
unique to this passage. It's typical. I counted at least four other times that that very verse is used. It comes from Proverbs. You see it, I think, in Ephesians. Uh, Jesus says it a few times in the Gospels. I mean, it's an obvious principle. But these guys are going for the number one seat. All the while. Now, here's what we can't forget. All the while, this is going on. There's one in need. So Jesus drops this parable on him. Now, 1 through 6, he says, you're looking at me. 7 through 11, I'm looking at you. Down through 24, he says, let's take a look at God. You wanted to see how I act? I see how you act. Now, let's look at our example in our God. Now, keep going here. Stick with And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. You following that? He says to the host even, after he's talked to the guests, he says to the host, Listen, don't invite all these people just because you know you're going to get a return offer. Don't invite all these some sort of honor and fame and glory because you threw a good party. And you invited all the right people, all the right politicians, all the right famous people. And now you're, you're famous by association. Don't do that. If you do, you see the last part of the verse? He says, your repayment comes now. The glory you get is now and it's done. But if you do the opposite, but when you give a reception, invite, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Verse 14, look at your reward. And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now look here. Verse 15. It's an interesting verse. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Well, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus gives a couple principles. He gives a principle in the parable. Don't be the first, be the last. You can always get moved up in the table. You'd never want to be moved down. Become last. Humble yourself. And then to the host, he says, listen, don't throw these parties, don't throw these lunches so that you can be elevated in social class. Instead, throw these parties and invite the guys who will not pay you back in this Uh, in this season or on this earth. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, them, and you will receive a reward, but your reward is going to be greater and it's going to be in heaven. He said, the kingdom will repay you for lowering yourself. The kingdom will repay you for putting pride to the side. For putting your status and your fame and your own personal glory to the side. The kingdom will repay you. And this one guy, Pipe, We'll all be blessed for eating in the kingdom. Most commentators believe that that verse, this guy was basically throwing out this seemingly pious compliment or pious statement to dull the sharp edge of Jesus' words. I mean, Jesus was cutting right through all the fake stuff. Can you imagine Jesus sitting at this meal? All this status stuff is going on around him. And Jesus has locked eyes with this lame man who's being ignored. Lays his hands on him and heals him. Let's him go. 
Jesus raises his eyes, looks around, and no one has even noticed. Lowers his eyes back to his plate, tells this parable. Saddened at what he's seen. Rebukes those in attendance. Rebukes the host. And now this guy who doesn't get it throws out this seemingly pious comment. And Jesus says, okay. There are a few times in Scripture that you never want to be around Jesus. You never want to uh, attempt to put Jesus on the spot. Uh, if you ever ask Jesus a question and he's silent, he doesn't, re- he doesn't say anything, that's a, bad, that's a bad situation. If you ever ask Jesus a question and he returns your question with another question, you're in bigger trouble. Okay? But if uh, you ever say something in the presence of Jesus once upon a time, you know you're, you've done it. Okay? This guy has become one of those once upon a time stories in the Gospels. Some wise guy pipes up, says something seemingly pious to dull the words of Jesus, and Jesus says, once upon a time. Now look at this. But he said to him, a man was giving a... And he invited many. Contrast that to this small lunch. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. For the first one said to him, I bought a a piece, excuse me, I've got Preston's tongue-tied. I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. I bought some land, and I I need to go walk around and check it out. Lame excuse. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Some translations say, I've got to go see if any of them are lame. What kind of guy buys cattle or ox when they're lame? Another. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Now, what kind of guy doesn't take his wife, his uh, new bride, to a free party? He don't do that. Another silly excuse. All based upon their own needs and their own desires and their own uh, priorities. Keep going here. The slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes and in the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to, so that my house may be filled. And here's the point of the parable. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, why is this passage here? And how does this all fit together? Let me try and wrap this up. One through six, Jesus notices the unnoticed. Jesus noticed the unnoticed. 7 through 11, Jesus notices that we don't notice the unnoticed. Jesus notices that we don't notice. 12 through 14, we better notice who God will notice. Now let me unpack that. Let me say it differently here because that's a little confusing. In the first paragraph, we find Jesus seeing the man who nobody else saw. Jesus having compassion on the one who no one else was having compassion upon. 
in 7 through 11, he gives a parable that says, you guys are all busy doing something, and I see that you haven't noticed. And I don't like it. The end of this passage, down through 24, he says, let me tell you who God notices. Now, there's a little bit of prophetic word in this. Let me unpack it really quickly. Uh, I won't go too far into it, but let me unpack it because it helps us to understand the passage. This last parable that Jesus told of the big dinner, man was giving a big dinner. Who do you think that man is who's going to give this big dinner? It's God. And it's going to be the, uh, at the table with the bridegroom. Who's who? Jesus. It's going to be the marriage feast of the Lamb. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. The table is set. Come to me. Who do you think that servant is that he sent out? It's Jesus. He goes out and he says, The kingdom has come. I am here. But what is the response of those who he has gone to? Incidentally, who does he go to? He goes to the religious leaders of the day. He goes to the Jews first. So he goes to those leaders. He goes to the rich. He goes to the ones who you would assume would get invited. The powerful. The leadership. He goes to the Jewish nation. And what does he get? He gets rejected. He gets rejected. He gets rejected. He gets rejected. He gets excuse after excuse after excuse. All needs and their own priorities, and their own status, their own fame, and their own glory. Pride, not humility. And so then, the man throwing the party, God, says to his servant, Jesus, Go out and find those guys who aren't necessarily the leaders. Find those... What verse is it here? Let me read what it says here. Go out at once into the streets and the lanes and the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Who does he go to? He goes to the people. He goes to the rest of the nation of Israel. And do they respond? Some of them do. We get a remnant from the nation of Israel before the time is shut, before, before the time of darkening, before this parenthesis of the church comes. And the, we've done that. We've done that and still here. Your house isn't full. Still the table isn't full. And so the man throwing the party says, Now, go out even further. Go to who? The Gentile. And you bring them in. And you fill up my table. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. None of those who got that initial invite and who rejected me and gave me excuse after excuse, will come in. Jesus noticed who was unnoticed. Jesus noticed that we didn't notice. Jesus says, listen, you better know who God will notice. You better understand who God will recognize. Will God recognize any man according to his status, according to his power, according to his might, according to his worth? According to his bank account? No. Now, started. Without taking this too deep, where does Jesus find him? He finds himself at a meal. Finds himself sitting eye to eye with a man who needs a touch. Nobody else wants to. Nobody else wants to touch this guy. In fact, they've only brought him in there out of impure motives. 
Jesus recognizes this. He deals with that man one-on-one. Then he turns to those who have set this man up and he says, Listen, I don't know what you guys are busy doing, but you've missed it. You've missed it. You're missing it. You're worried about something you don't need to be worried about and you're missing what is right in front of your face. Suing this. Invite people who need the invite. Stop wasting your time inviting people who can elevate you, who can repay you. Why? Because let's take a look at God. Who is God in the business of inviting to His table? God has set a call out to all to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And when they rejected Him, He says, that's fine. I'll go and I'll extend my invitation to the very outcast. Who will God invite? Who will God notice in His kingdom? This man says, surely all those who will eat bread in the kingdom will be blessed. Jesus says, do you really know who's going to be in the kingdom? It may not be those who you think are going to be in the kingdom. In fact, you guys are out here jockeying from position, elevating yourself, when the truth is, God proves Himself strong in the weak. There's something about pride and humility that must be learned in Christianity. And can I tell you that grace is the firm foundation, the firm foundation of true humility. You see, it's not until we understand exactly what God has done for us and the extent of His grace, the extent of His call to us who are on the outskirts, who are the lowly, that we understand that we need not jockey for higher position. We need not elevate our own. Instead, we need to move to the end of the table. We need to decide that true character, true worth, listen, those, those moral characteristics that God is looking for in us come in the person of humility come in the person who says you know what I know who I am in Christ and I know who I'm and I know who I am compared to everyone else and I know who I'm not and we take the appropriate seat we take the appropriate seat let me read you this as I close Warren Wiersbe great theologian in our past humility is a fundamental grace in the Christian life Yet it is elusive. If you know how you have it, lost it. It has well been said that humility is not thinking meanly of ourselves. It is simply not thinking of ourselves at all. Jesus is the greatest example of humility. And we would do well to ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to imitate Him. Christ, who thought it not robbery, who thought it not robbery, to let go of the glory and the fame that he had at the right hand of the Father. Paul says, have the same attitude in yourselves that Christ had in him. Who did not grasp equality with God, although he had a right to. He did it with God. Instead, he what? Emptied himself. He humbled himself. Humbled himself to the point of a slave. Humbled himself to the point of a man. Not just any common man, but a slave. A slave who died on the cross. Who died a poor man's death. Jesus was willing to do that. What should we be willing to do? Paul, 
Three times in Scripture, in his writings, Paul says, number one, I'm the least of the apostles. Later on, he says, I'm the least of the saints. Later on, he says, I am the chief of all sinners. What do you think about Paul's humility? You know, uh, you guys have noticed Kimberly. She is obviously pregnant. And uh, here in a couple weeks, we're going to have boy number two. And we are, we're struggling trying to pick a name. And, uh, you know, uh, I could come up with one pretty easy, the truth of the matter is. But uh, Kimberly's more picky. You know how I would come up with a name, can I tell you? Uh, I've got a short I would love to name my next son. Uh, none of them. Uh, meet the criteria for Kimberly. But let me tell you where I get these names. They're not names that I necessarily am in love with. But they're names of men who I've known in my life who are men of great character. And when I mean they're men of great character, they're those type of men, daughter, I want my daughter to marry. You remember that kind of ideal person? They're those type of men. And when I think of that man, a man that I would name my next son after, and a, name, a man that I would uh, uh, gladly place the hand of my daughter in. Those men are not men who are famous, great worth. They're not men with great bank accounts. They're not men of great stature. They're not men who are uh, well respected because of their accomplishments or their education. None of them. Can I tell you that when it gets down to the heart of the matter, who would I want my daughter to marry? Who would I name my son after? They're men like Kenny McKinney. Baseball player that I went to college with that I never harsh word about another person in all my four years around the guy. And I never heard another man or another woman say a harsh word about him. Kenny McKinney. Jeb Smith, I think of. Jeb Smith, when I was a freshman in high school, he was a senior on the football team, and he was just a good old country Jeb. You've got you to be a country boy. You've got to own a horse, have some cattle, etc. I would name my son Jeb, okay? Why? Not because this guy's famous. I don't know what he's doing now. But you know what? I never heard a harsh word come out of this guy's mouth. I never saw him elevate himself over a freshman. I never saw him elevate himself, although he was a star cornerback on our team, went to the University of Florida and played... I never saw him or another person, and I never heard anyone else offer a harsh word against Jeb Smith. I would name my son Jeb. I would offer my daughter to a man like that. You guys, have you got men or even women in your life like that? I mean, we all do. We all have people that we've known that we can't say a bad because their character and their integrity is such that we can't help but elevate them because they've never taken the first seat. They've always been willing to take the last seat. Proverbs. Never praise yourself with your own lips. Let the lips of another praise you. Listen, here's the, here's the, here's the thing that I didn't want us to miss for all the theology this morning. We've got to become better people. And somewhere in our generations... I. Uh, no offense to my parents' generation, but I believe uh, if we look back in the history of America at least, uh, I think my parents' generation started to drop the ball and it's continued to drop from there on. 
you know, the 60s, Wood, uh, Woodstock, all, all this, uh, morality began to become less important. Social uh, right and wrong became less and less important. And they passed it down to my generation, who was the MTV generation, and we took it even further. And so the character of the uh, Depression age got lost in a generation. In about 40 years, it began to fade out and it was lost by the time you get to my generation. And so things like integrity, things like uh, courage, things, those basic things that we look and we say, that's the kind of guy I want to be like. That's the kind of girl I want my son to marry. Those things we're losing. So listen, the church has the responsibility of reclaiming some of these things. We have the responsibility to pour back into our children and start to say to them, hey, I don't care how famous you become in this world. I've told you this before, that if Grady never holds a job for more than three years, as long as he's successful in God's eyes, that's all I will care about. We've got to start teaching our kids that it's not important how, how prestigious their college is, how pretty their wife is, how nice their car is, how big their home is, etc., etc. And start saying that things like integrity, humility, courage, servanthood, those are the character traits that we need to honor. Amen? Hey, let's get some of those things back. I have... I get depressed when I think about the lack of those things in my life and in my history. Maybe some of you do as well. We have the opportunity in our children and in the next generation and as a church to pull some of this back together. To notice some of the things that have gone... To notice some of the things that Jesus says, this is important, this is worth noting, this is worth spending your time. And you know what? This isn't worth spending your time.